This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, as a professor, radio host, and writer, I'm intrigued by the processes of creating and disseminating knowledge. Journalists and academics, in my opinion, have a lot in common. Passionate writing, careful research, and the hope to impact our society through carefully crafted arguments rather than through 140-character-long messages are just a few examples of that commonality. Now, another commonality is that journalists and professors both have a complicated love-hate relationship with digital technologies, yes? Writing an article is more fun on a PC than a typewriter, and yes, you can reach global audiences now through the Internet. But digitization has also dramatically increased the supply of articles, often with negative effects of quality and price. Many newspapers are struggling, and the work of journalists, a pillar for any functioning democracy, is under attack. So journalism and reporting is the topic of my show today. To explore this topic further, I want to welcome two wonderful guests, Jeremy Gilbert, the Director for Strategic Initiatives at the Washington Post, and in the second half of the show I will be talking to Matt Bogie, former Chief Technology Officer of Axios and Executive Director of the New York Times R&D Lab. At this point, welcome Jeremy. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Jeremy, one of my favorite movies last year has been The Post, uh, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. What was your take on that movie? <laughs> uh, we were pretty thrilled here at The Post to have The Post as a movie. Um, I, I think one thing that we really enjoyed is that Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, and Tom Hanks came to our news meeting and chatted it up a little bit, which was great, too. I think, in general, the movie is a really important reminder of two things. One, that leadership knows no gender, and two, that whether you're first with the story or not, it's really important to dig hard and that our society and our government particularly requires the kind of investigative reporting that both the Washington Post and the New York Times in that movie do. Speaking of digging hard in journalism, talk about the Washington Post and give us listeners a sense of what kind of an operation is supporting of what we as readers enjoy uh, on the consumer side. The thing that has really changed about The Post is that we are somewhat more agnostic about how we publish news than we once were. We're obviously a, a legacy newspaper organization, and it's still an important way that we distribute news and information, but that now the primary way that we think about what we do is very much about digital publication. It means that we publish every story as soon as we have it digitally. We don't hold back anything for print. We want to serve our print readers as well as we can, but the focus of our day is often on the more than 10 million digital readers we get per day, not just the people who live in the D.C. area and get the printed paper. How about the production process, if you let me call it this way? I mean, behind digital and paper, there are journalists. Give us a sense of the scale of the journalist operations, how many journalists there are employed, how many freelance writers there are. So we at The Post tend to describe all the people in our newsroom, all the people that report to Marty Barron, our executive editor, as journalists. And so there are between about 750 and 800 journalists at The Post now. That's up pretty dramatically from a few years ago, more than 200 more journalists than we had when Jeff Bezos bought The Post. So there's been a heavy investment in the newsroom. We actually built, not uh, just a few years ago, a system called the Talent Network. And the Talent Network was meant to digitize the way that we communicated with freelancers to help make all of the editors aware of freelancers, to help different people in different corners of the newsroom know both geographically and in terms of specialty what kinds of freelancers were available. And we have several thousand freelancers in that system that we use pretty regularly. One of the best metrics for the growth of our editorial ambitions is around the number of stories we publish. Just a few years ago, we used to publish about 200 stories a day, most of which went into print. Today, we publish between three and 400 stories a day, and most of those appear digitally only. And, I mean, I, as a professor, I understand measuring output in the sense my, my dean looks at me and says, like, well, Christian, you teach three courses a year, and you write about a quarter of a book every year and two articles per year. So you mentioned as the output measure is basically stories per year. 
Um, how have these stories changed? Uh, I mean, one simple way, and not in any way to accuse you of that strategy, but one simple way is make the stories half as long and three times as shallow, and then productivity is an easy game to play. Well, productivity is about the newsroom and not about individuals. So Eli Saslow, one of our incredible, brilliant feature writers, the continual Pulitzer finalist, uh, he writes a handful, maybe as many as three or four stories per year. John Woodrow Cox, another brilliant feature writer, writes at a similar cadence. Philip Bump, one of our best political reporters, just a really incredibly insightful political reporter, sometimes has written eight stories in one day. And it is not about asking individuals to just churn out bad journalism. We are not looking for that at all. We are looking for non-commodity stories. What can we tell you that other people haven't or cannot? And that's really important to the value of the Washington Post. Talk about that. Sorry, go go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, initially, that value was often measured in just the sheer size of the audience and then converted to revenue through ads. But nowadays, we're also talking about how do we create value that people would want to subscribe directly for. Talk about your workflow uh, from, from idea to story and how that process, how that workflow has changed over the last 10 to 15 years with kind of advances in digital technology. One of the most important things that Jeff Bezos told the, the leadership team at The Post is that if you're business depends on a particular technology, it's best if you can control it. And so we have built a suite of content management system tools that have really transformed how our reporters work. We call it ARC. ARC is licensed around the country and around the world, um, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Toronto Globe and Mail, Infobuy in Argentina, and dozens of others. And one of the things that we built into ARC is a tool that really transforms both how we think about what stories we're working on and what we can do with those stories. And this tool called WebSked was actually the, the created at the behest of Marty Barron, our executive editor, and he said, if I'm the executive editor, I need to know all the stories we're working on, regardless of how many there are. And so what WebSked allows us to do is it allows different people in the newsroom to see who is working on what story at any given time, but it also allows a whole bunch of different producers and designers to think more like a wire service about the stories that are available to fill different platforms. So our Snapchat Discover team, uh, the AMP team that works on Google AMP Stories, the team that does Instagram stories, a whole bunch of other teams all look at this flow, this river of stories that are coming through and say, these are the stories that work for our audience. We'll produce it in the way that works for our audience. So that has really transformed how we work. We still believe very strongly in editing. We still have at least two, often more edits on any given story. Quality is important, but pace matters too. So help us understand more about this content management system. So I, I envision this as a huge whiteboard, so to say, where everybody in the newsroom can, can, can see like what everybody's working on. It facilitates uh, collaboration. It, it avoid, avoids redundancy. And as you said, like the output channels, be it the Instagrams, the so other social media, they, they know what to draw. Is, is that a fair representation of what ARC does? I mean, it really is. I often think about it a little bit like Twitter, that looking at WebSked, you see this flow of stories going by. You can dig back into the older stuff. You can just wait as new things come in. But it, it, and, and what's interesting is you see the stories in all different states. Some are being edited. Some are, being, um, some are still being reported. It's just a constant flow of stories. And then individual editors, producers, reporters can watch different stories, be told when they're ready for publication, um, take some actions in terms of social sharing from WebSked. So it is in many ways like that whiteboard you talked about, but it, it is almost a digital gathering place to just know everything that's going on with the post at any given moment. Now, as an operations professor, I love the concept of flow. Uh, but whenever I hear the word flow, I'm asking myself, what slows the flow down? If you think about that, <laughs> that big flow, and pardon my manufacturing jargon for that, but where is the bottleneck? What, what keeps the news flow, which is already happening at this amazingly fast speed these days, what keeps the flow from moving even faster? I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I think the we, we talk about 
copy editing. Our, our copy editors edit a lot of things, not just text. So we describe them as multi-platform editors. But I don't think we could ever have enough multi-platform editors since we really do want all of the stories that are put out to have to be strongly edited for content, but also edited for grammar and facts and style. Uh, I think that's one sort of centralization point, which can sometimes slow us down if we don't have enough multi-platform editors at any given moment. I think the other thing is we just want more reporters. I mean, I think there isn't an editor in this place who wouldn't explain to you passionately why they need more reporters. I mean, growing our audience is definitely based on growing the kinds and types of stories that we do. So, so those are the two big pieces. As we have more reporters, we can tell more stories. As we have more reporters telling more stories, we need more editors. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and I'm chatting with Jeremy Gilbert, the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Washington Post. And we're discussing how journalism, this is a production of news stories, has a certain flow, a certain process element to it. And Jeremy, in many other industries, we've seen automation kind of change, certainly manufacturing, but a lot of other aspects of the knowledge industry. I understand that you folks at the Post have been quite pioneering and I mean you mentioned your content management tools already but also in terms of automation of the production of news stories so another component of arc the content management system is a tool that we call heliograph and heliograph is a system that does sort of four things it, it listens for new data it assesses what's in that information it figures out how to tell a story out of that data and then it distributes the data across a variety of platforms, publishing to our website, but it can make tweets, it can send Facebook updates, uh, it can be hooked up to a Facebook Messenger bot, it can you know, make stories for the Alexa, uh, the Echo family of smart speakers, the Google Homes. So it can do a variety of different outputs. We've covered a bunch of different events. We've covered a Summer Olympics and a Winter Olympics. We are doing automated stories about individual athletes, so baseball players, football players, and others. We've covered high school football. But right now, because we're the Washington Post, we're using Heliograph to cover the 2018 election. And one of the big differences, one of the reasons that we want to use a system like Heliograph is to create living stories. A living story is an ever-evolving story based on external events and data. So in the case of the elections, we're talking about covering all 435 House races, all the Senate races, all the gubernatorial races that are happening this year. And when we launched them, they were previewing most of the primaries. And then on the night of the primary, the system automatically shifts to counting votes in those primaries. And then the next day, it'll tell you who won, or as soon as the race is announced, instantly, every 30 to 90 seconds it was updating, who won those races. And then pretty soon thereafter, it automatically transitions to previewing the general election. Now, on November 6th, it's going to start counting votes when the votes start coming in. Then, once that particular race is decided, it will look at them in context of all the races. So how has the House Senate shifted in its balance of power? And eventually, as soon as that is also no longer of, as newsy, it'll shift to covering the legislators who are elected from those particular districts or the states. And so it's somewhere in between a typical breaking news article that can have a shelf life of, if not hours, sometimes even minutes, and Wikipedia, which essentially is unchanging for long periods of time. In this case, we're talking about something that is newsy, but not changing every minute except during the vote counting. And the whole idea with Heliograph is not that we outsource our journalists. We're lucky to have some of the best reporters in the world, but rather that we prevent them from wasting any time on rote or mundane storytelling. Like We don't want a Washington Post political reporter counting the votes and telling you what happened. We want them out interviewing, analyzing, asking questions, determining the story behind the numbers, not reporting the numbers. So when we can get machines to report the numbers, that's great. So the technology in this case is really, it's not there to boost efficiency. It's boosting either the quality by leveraging the journalist in his or her writing skills or interviewing skills, as well as in terms of timeliness by allowing you to update the score of a local high school team where you football match where you really would not say this is worthy sending of one of our important journalists to that, that match. But nevertheless, you can have fresh news anytime. 
Exactly. So when I talk about scale and automation, the scale that I'm talking about here is primarily about the number of stories. But ironically, it's also about trying to find an, the, the, the ability to create a story for an ever smaller audience. So we scale up the number of stories, meaning we can scale down the size of the audience for any one story. So with high school sports, that's saying we can reach uh, an audience size that would otherwise be too small for the post to, to afford to send journalists to, or too specific. And then we can use techniques like, in the case of the elections, we know the geolocation of, or, or if they allow us to know, we know the geolocation of most of our digital users, we can say, if you are in Pennsylvania, we will give you as close as we can get to your congressional district and any statewide races. So in a lot of ways, we can serve ever smaller audiences as long as we use automation to scale up the number and types of stories that we can do. Is it fair to say from a manufacturing perspective, it's, it's really like mass customization that you do, right? It's like exactly, mass customization. But the other thing we can do with Heliograph that's interesting is it doesn't always have to be user-facing. It doesn't always have to be public. So the other thing that we have done is we are starting to look for patterns and aberrations in those patterns in data. And what we're trying to do there is just alert one of our human journalists that something unusual is happening and it's worth looking into why that's happening. And so that could be about how incumbents are faring. It could be about an aberration in um, a, a company's financial reporting. It could be about a lot of different things, but what we're trying to do is use systems like Heliograph to listen to the data and then give tips, sending out human journalists more smartly in terms of what they cover and what they can cover. So speaking of the financial services industry, I have to chuckle there a little bit because we had a previous guest who was talking about how they use natural language processing and computers to read news articles. You guys are using computers to write news articles, so we have basically now computers writing for computers. Isn't, isn't there a certain irony in, in history at this point? There absolutely would be. I mean, I do think, I, I, I think the thing that's really fascinating is that everyone needs insights into data, and more and more people are starting to realize that the way human reporters at places like the Washington Post work is a great way of trying to get unique insights before anyone else has them. And the fact that essentially we're training our automated systems to be able to put out stories by a human-like reporting process. It's surprises me not at all that they're then trying to read through stories and figure out what's most important. Now, in manufacturing, the interplay really between the worker and the robot is often where the, the magic is to get better productivity, higher quality, or faster response time. Um, tell us a little bit more. You were alluding to that a uh, moment ago, Jeremy. So the, uh, the, the heliograph technology that you were describing early on is also helping, maybe prompting, maybe triggering a journalist to investigate something. How, how does that interface between man and machine work? Right now, uh, two things. One, the system, heliograph, doesn't write stories from nothing. So we typically train it with a human editor. So one of my colleagues, Terry Rupar, on the politics national team has done a tremendous amount of really valuable work to help divine what are important stories, how would we want to approach stories if they had this kind of data or if they had that kind of data, how do we deal with these kinds of patterns. The thing that has been most pleasing and surprising to me is it's not a humans versus machines kind of situation at the Post. We've actually had a number of requests that we're working on from human editors saying, I do this thing over and over again. I look for the same things. Can you automate that for me? And so often we're looking at those kinds of opportunities where humans say, we're doing this this way. Can we automate it and maybe even do more than I'm able to do? And then I can be freed up to do the things that I want to do. The other thing that we're doing is we're trying to get different people who are regularly looking at the same data sources to describe their methods, and then we can help them automate that. So if every month they need to pour through the annual jobs numbers, then we can help them with that process. They can tell us what to look for, what, what is unusual, and then they can jump off while their colleagues at other news organizations are just first starting to look at the data. They can potentially see faster than anyone else what's different. So we, we talked a lot about data and how, how central it is uh, to kind of modern reporting. 
going back to the the movie, the post here, it's kind of reinforced a little bit of what you thought about a journalist uh, 30, 40 years ago, the kind of the, the more the writing person sitting there with a cigarette and coffee all night long. Um, has the profession, has a kind of the, the, the background, the professional training that journalists has, how, how has that kind of the data, the data analytics, the statistics, the quant side, how has it shaped of who is typically now in a newsroom in a company like the Washington Post? I think the biggest challenge is that we ask so much more of our journalists, especially our reporters today, than we ever did before, that it used to be enough that a reporter knew how to go out, ask tough questions, and write up a story. And now we're really trying to break that model down. We're trying to say, when you report a story, you need to think about what are all the possibilities for different ways to present the story. Just because you are a writer doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need a videographer or an audio person or a graphics person. And so now more and more, we're originating stories from different parts of the newsroom. A videographer discovers something worthy and brings in a text-based reporter. But the other thing is, after you finish telling your story, we now care a lot more about your ability to interact with your audience on usually social channels. That more and more, it's not enough to just tell your story. You have to be part of the process of getting your story in the hands of the people who might be interested in it. And that is a big change. The sad truth is we don't have more time, so we have to make tough choices. But more and more, we're hiring people who automatically want to know how their story is performing, want to know how they can get it in front of more people, and not just want to discover great stories. They want to discover great stories and be part of the process of getting it out there. Now, our society talks a lot about populism these days and kind of a certain eagerness, a certain desire to appeal to the crowds as opposed to kind of staying with the truth. Do you think that hunt for clicks and that quantification of success and quality by, by looking at viewerships or kind of social media types of endorsement. Is there is, is there a downside to that? I mean, I think there are societal risks. I would say to a business like the Washington Post, there are real dangers, not just to the society, but to the business in terms of following that kind of a strategy. If you are chasing users who are not really engaged, who aren't actively seeking out the kinds of fair and ethical reporting deeply investigated stories that we do, then we are wasting our time. We want to reach a lot of customers, but we want to reach customers who care about the source of the information they get, care about the quality of the journalism they read, because those are the customers who are most likely to pay directly in terms of digital subscriptions or, or digital and print subscriptions if you're in our print coverage area. And increasingly, that is the critical component to the Post business is how do we get more people to pay directly for our journalism? Now, central to the movie of the Post and your, your earlier comments of some of your journalists being really having the permission by the, the management teams, the, the editorial boards, to, to go out and really not write a paper like write a story every week, but really dig really deep and do solid investigative journalism. How, how do you manage that, that trade-off between the, 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 the pressure to fill a newspaper tomorrow, even in, in the digital world, there's a pressure for output, and then the patience for that great quality, uh, the kind of the great story that will come eventually, but you know, at, a, at a much lower cadence? I mean, I think one of the things is not everyone is going to be working on that long investigative piece, that we need to have a balance in our newsroom between people who are who are out doing great stories, holding government accountable, but publishing every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and people who are working on one great story that they will eventually get, but that they don't have now. And what we ask our assigning editors to do is to understand who their audience is and how they can differentiate the post from any competitor who might also be reaching that audience and what their audience needs in terms of not just the types of information, but the channels that we are publishing that information on and the frequency with which we're publishing. So I think we as an organization need to strike a balance. We need to have those kinds of unique and incredibly deeply reported pieces that take a lot of time and we need to make enough space that we can do that. But we also have to constantly remind people that we exist and we have to constantly be holding officials and other people accountable through our coverage every day. No, and organizationally, I mean, the trade-off or the tension between 
in the literature on innovation is called exploration versus exploitation. I didn't want to use the word exploitation in the context of your workforce. It sounds so harsh, right? But the, the urge of basically making money tomorrow and then the need of planning for the future is, is a common dilemma or a common tension in any innovative organization. Do you, do you have quotas for that where you say, like, we're going to take 20% of our journalists and allow them to work on long-term stories? Or does every journalist have, like, the license to do one day a week something crazy? I'm, I mean, just on a, uh, managerially, just how do, you, how do you manage the tension? We've definitely talked about other organizations who structure things differently. Google famously giving its 20% to um, certain employees to, to experiment. What we have tended to do is to be concerned with the cadence of the kinds of work we're doing. So are we regularly enough giving our readers, especially for non-timely stuff, are we regularly enough giving our readers the kinds of really deep, long-form, often multi-sensory style stories where they mix different forms like video and audio and others? And as long as we are regularly doing that kind of work, we don't necessarily worry about exactly how many stories we're putting out on a daily basis or how many long-form stories. As Marty Baron puts it, when we have a story ready, we'll publish. On the other hand, we do try to think about in terms of when we start to commit reporters to projects and stories, are we spreading out enough that we'll have a steady flow that people can see longer form, deeper reported pieces? And that's coming about fairly well organically. That said, we bring together a bunch of our top editors every week and we talk about what are what we refer to as enterprise stories and how are they doing and what sort of the flow that's happening. And some we will apply more resources to speed them up, and some will say, ah, you know, we, we have a little more time. We can wait on that story. So we are doing some of that balance. What is the role of competition in all of that? Uh, the Times just published a fairly careful investigative piece on the Trump family tax evasion strategy, and I, I'm just wondering, is that something that you knew was in the making, or is it literally like in the movie where you sent the intern over to the, 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 the Times and see, like, what are they working <laughs> on? I, I love that piece, but uh, competition matters, right? Because when you're working for six months on this investigative piece, there's a certain desire to be first to market, I would imagine. More than certain. I mean, we... We really either want to be first or we want to have a unique offering. It doesn't do us a lot of good to, to chase other stories. The Times' year-plus-long project was, was brilliantly edited, brilliantly reported, and there certainly was a lot of jealousy, like, much like the Pentagon Papers. We, we would have loved for that to be our story first. We're doing everything we can to follow those types of stories. We certainly very actively watch what not just the New York Times, but the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, and others are doing to make sure that we're covering the right stories, that we have the right balance. But we try as hard as we can to really concentrate on what is unique to us, what we have first, what we have uh, an exceptional opportunity to really benefit our readers. But sure, in a day and age when it's so much easier to know what your competition is off, up to, we're interested in what they're doing. We're not spying on them. I think the movie the movie made a lot of that for the sake of storytelling and maybe less uh, than we would have in the newsroom. But sure, it, what your competition does matters, especially as more and more people have a paywall strategy and a subscription model. You need to make sure that what you're offering is, is valuable and distinct from what someone else is offering. Democracy dies in darkness is the slogan here. Uh, what is your outlook for the future of journalism? <laughs> I am very bullish on journalism. I believe that we had gone several generations without people understanding the importance of journalism in the United States and maybe internationally. And I feel increasingly, due to a whole bunch of changes that are happening here in the States, but also abroad, that people are more aware of the role the press plays in checking governments, ours in the United States, but also abroad, and that I hope at least people are seeing a very concrete value. That certainly seems to be reflected in the growth of subscriptions. Says Jeremy Gilbert, the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Washington Post. Thank you so much, Jeremy, both for this interview and what you're doing for our society. At this point, it's my big pleasure to welcome my second guest today. That is Matt Boji, the former Chief Technology Officer of Axios and Executive Director of the New York Times R&D Lab. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me, Christian. Great to talk to you. Hey, Matt, your background is in tech. Um, talk about how you ended up in the world of journalism. 
Sure. Um, yes, as you say, I, I started out in technology. I was working at Accenture, where one of my second, I think my second project while I was there was actually working for uh, some NBC-owned and operated stations. We were doing content management systems. Um, and given that and my background at home, uh, my dad, uh, my whole life was a reporter. He worked in a sports desk at a local newspaper. And so I'd always just sort of had it in my DNA, I guess. And once I got into it professionally, uh, it was just really exciting. It was being able to take some of the skills that I had learned in tech and being able to apply them to some problems out in the real world that would actually affect how society functions. And that just was a huge win for me. Um, so I never really looked back. Um, since then, I uh, consulted with publishers and news organizations throughout my career at Accenture. And then, as you said, then on to the New York Times and on to Axios. And I never really looked back. Could you write a great story yourself, or are you more of a process and technology person who brings out the best in others, in other words, leverage the, the skills of the writers? <laughs> uh, definitely the latter. Um, I, I get a big kick out of being the enabler in those situations, being able to build the tools and the processes that make it easier for reporters to do the work that they do. Talk about your time with the New York Times R&D Lab. Uh, most of our listeners, I assume, did not even know the Times had an R&D Lab. What were the goals of that department? Sure. Um, yeah, so I was there for about six years. Our, our goal there was to look three to five years out into the future and to identify technology trends that would change either how people consumed information or how that information was gathered and processed. Um, it was a pretty big remit. And so what we were allowed to do is really go wherever we, we thought the, the tech or the process changes would take us. Um, it was a really fascinating opportunity. We did everything from content management system and technology, uh, sort of infrastructure planning uh, innovation, all the way up to working with UAVs and drones for how they would affect how uh, photographers and videographers would capture stories. So talk a little bit more about content management system. Uh, in the first half of the show, Jeremy Gilbert was talking about their content management system that they had developed at the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to get a sense of, uh, it's such a vague term of well, how you use the content management system and what was, what was hard to develop that one. Exactly, yeah. I mean, when we were looking at it, I think you know this isn't an original idea, uh, but certainly we've heard it a lot in journalism circles that content management systems are your first editor. The interfaces that you're presented with, the control that you're given, the constraints that that implies on your process are all things that will affect the outcome of your writing. So uh, we really looked at it from a perspective of how can we make a content management system not only something that is extremely flexible from a technology perspective, that is, how do we upgrade them more efficiently? Um, what we were looking at was a uh, process, and this was a few years ago, where lots of different publishers were thinking of sort of revamping their content management processes. And it would be a process where you go through a, a requirements gathering process and then a selection and then installation and configuration. And generally those took anywhere from a year to two or more. And by the time you were done with the project, the state of the art had moved on. You were already two years behind. So we were trying to figure out, are there ways that we can make these things more modular, um, compose them of different smaller components that can then be swapped out or changed more quickly. Um, and then second, what are the technologies that we could apply that would help to uh, advance the, the cause of journalism on a more day-to-day -day basis? What are some things that these systems can do that would support a reporter as opposed to getting in their way? So uh, we did a couple of experiments around how uh, excuse me, AI, artificial intelligence, could be used to sort of read along with a reporter as they were typing their story. Um, suggesting uh, different content tags that might go into it, confirming that the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu that you were talking about was, in fact, the uh, Israeli politician, um, and potentially even going further and saying things like, you seem to be quoting a source that you've quoted several times in the past. Uh, maybe this is an opportunity to look for a different angle, or um, the thing that this person is saying in your article contradicts something that they said six months ago, and that might be an interesting area of research for you to go down. Um, and so from our perspective, it was anything that can mediate the process of creating a new story. So whether it's the writing, uh, whether it's uploading photos and managing the imagery around it, uh, whether it's interacting with your graphics department and making sure that the great visuals that they're doing uh, are compatible and, and easily embeddable, um, those are the components that we were really looking at for that system. I mean, that's a fascinating use case, uh, the one that you're describing that I'm, I'm, I'm typing on my uh, article about Israeli peace, and as I'm writing Netanyahu's name, uh, a fact-checked is done. Is, is is the guy still the prime minister? 
Uh, it looks at other sources I've used in the past. Is that literally while, I mean, just to bring this to life, I'm like uh, you're typing in your word editor, if you will, and as you're typing, these, this tagging, these background checks are all running automatically. They're just kind of hovering over your writing and natural language processing is kind of looking and um, dissecting what you're writing? Exactly. That was the concept, yeah. Um, and to clarify, you know, in R&D, our role was to build prototypes. We were showing what could be possible. And so in these cases, we didn't obviously take it all the way down to fruition and working with the newsroom and their, their thousands of, of uh, contributors. But what we were able to do was to show the first building blocks of that, that you could use these new techniques, natural language processing, machine learning, um, to better support the reporter in the work that they were doing. And so we got as far as a text editor that was fairly straightforward and simple, but it did exactly what you were talking about. As you were typing, it would, notif it would notice uh, names, locations, names of companies, and would automatically tag that metadata so that you could find it later on. That's fascinating. Uh, personal question, I mean, what did your dad say? I mean, I, I can pardon I mean, you, you, you come, you, you mentioned in the beginning, you come from a journalism family, and we know typically when, when technologies, especially if introduced by, by, by smart, but sometimes too smart consultants, they, 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 they hit a little bit uh, a resistance on the user side. What mm -hmm. did either your, your dad, but in general, the, 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 the journalists who were supposed to use this at the New York Times, what was their reaction to the, the system like that? It was certainly mixed. I think on the positive side, uh, especially with the journalists that we were working with at the Times, they were used to the process they already had where they had to mark a story at the end of its editing, you know, according to the entities that were in it. And so they saw this as saving some time with something that they were doing. Um, and certainly any of the, the work that we did that could be seen as supportive, uh, you know, not replacing a reporter, uh, not writing the story for them, but allowing them to do more with their time was, was seen as something that was very positive. Um, some of the other areas where I think we sometimes would get some negative reactions are some of the things that we're seeing in, in lots of different places now. The impact of, of social media, of, of tweeting stories rather than writing them and publishing them, for example. Uh, I know, you know to, to take it back to my dad for a second, I know that's something that he kind of drills into his reporters now that he's an editor and make sure that if there is a big story, like save that for the paper and tease it as opposed to giving away the, the store for free on Twitter. So when you look at the newspaper business now or when you joined the New York Times, uh, from the perspective of a management consultant, uh, mm -hmm. how is, is that, are there things that are jumping to you in terms of efficiency improvements, quality improvements, improving the willingness to pay of the users by improving the reading experience? It lies in the nature of any somewhat non-manufacturing style business, that it is uh, it takes great pride in craftsmanship, artistic and creative skills, and mm -hmm. there is typically a healthy maybe, but a, a real tension between those types of attitudes and the ideas of management consultants, or for that matter, business school mm -hmm. professors who like, who like process, who like technology, uh, who like it the German way, if you wish. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think, you know, as I look at it from the sort of consultant mindset, uh, the business model is certainly something that I think requires a lot more attention. I think the adjacency model that has served the, the industry well from, say, the 50s up through the early 2000s may have been a bit of an anomaly. Um, I, I think ultimately being able to advertise to an audience isn't necessarily the most sustainable or, or even the most uh, aligned with your goals uh, way of making money. Um, I actually look at what The Guardian is doing as something that is, is heading in a, in a much better direction where they're... Uh, on the one hand, they have a trust, obviously, which is uh, an endowment that can support their operations through tough times. Uh, and they've also been focusing primarily on membership as the way that they think about how they reach their audience. And I think if, if you really think about the way that we subscribe today to any publication, and Times is a great example of this, you know, it's less about the strict trade of value. You know, um, you know I, for example, subscribe to the New York Times on the weekend, and I think the thing that I most consistently do is the crossword. Um, I'm certainly paying a lot to do the crossword. <laughs> but the other part of that is that I really believe in the mission that they have, and I want to be sure that I'm supporting them in a way that can help sustain their operations. And so I think the more that we can focus on that as the, the way that we uh, support our journalists, uh, the better off we might be. Because the, the link between the content that we're creating and the, the advertising that's adjacent to it has always been very tenuous and one that I don't think is, is sufficient anymore to really sustain the industry. Was that business model innovation piece part of what you worked on in the R&D labs? 
It was. Uh, we were looking at a couple of different ideas where we could take some of the content we had created and repurpose it for other uses. We saw a huge value in the archive, being able to tag photography and earlier stories for research and reuse purposes. Um, and I think a lot of organizations um, sort of forget the value of the historic information that they've collected. There's a lot of interest in that sort of thing. And so one of the goals of the, the editor project that we were talking about a moment ago was to make sure that anytime we created something in the newsroom process, it was properly tagged so that we can go and find it for lots of different reuse purposes later on. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Terich, and I'm chatting with Matt Vorgi, the former Chief Technology Officer at Axios and Executive Director of the R&D Lab at the New York Times. And we're talking about how those R&D labs played around with different business models uh, for, for journalism. Uh, is there, Matt, I was wondering if you would be willing to share an innovation with us that uh, you have been working on in the R&D labs of the Times that were just just failed really bitterly? Or is, is that something <laughs> that should not shared, be shared with anybody? Any, any uh, story that comes to mind? Yeah, actually, we, we spent a fair amount of time working on some, some uh, 3D work. This was probably back in 2011, 2012, when 3D television sets were all the rage. All the different manufacturers were coming out with their different systems with glasses that you would wear at home, those sorts of things. Um, and we worked with our graphics desk to do an animation of uh, Mariana Rivera, the former Yankees pitcher, sort of showing his control. And we built a whole like living room of the future demo area where you could come and, and watch that. Um, and while we didn't necessarily think that 3D was going to be a, a savior of the industry at all, I mean, all of our research showed that everything we were doing was eventually going to just accrue on top of it. So this is going to be one other thing that we worked on. I think even I was surprised by how little impact uh, that technology had on the world. That said, you can now see the fruits of some of that in augmented reality and virtual reality experiments that are now becoming much more prevalent out in the world and, and, and certainly something that the Times themselves put a lot of effort into. Talk more about uh, augmented and virtual reality because I think it's a really interesting question to think about how much of the modern newspaper for that for lack of a better term, how much modern media is simply replicating the good old paper and now doing it digitally versus how much it is taking advantage of the digital technology and providing a more immersive reader experience. So how mm -hmm. are the, these kind of the augmented and the virtual reality pieces playing out? Yeah, I think if you look at the Venn diagrams of the use cases that augmented and virtual reality have and those that a, a typical journalistic entity is trying to put out into the world, the overlap there is very small. There are very few kinds of stories, I think, that really work in a, in a truly immersive, excuse me, immersive situation. Um, and I think that trying to force more stories into that because this is a new and interesting thing often just damages both sides. It makes the technology look less interesting because the story presentation isn't fantastic, and it takes uh, assets and resources away from reporting that otherwise could have been done in a more um, germane way to the, the subject matter at hand. Um, so I think with, with augmented and virtual reality, I think those overlap much more in the gaming and entertainment spaces, and that's where I think that makes a lot more sense. Um, that said, you know, it was, again, something we did some research on when we were there in the lab, um, and we were looking primarily at things like augmenting spaces and surfaces. Uh, so, for example, being able to use uh, the technology that you might have in a kitchen of the future to guide you as you went through a recipe to show you uh, exactly how to, to chop that onion or how big to make the cubes of steak as you made your stew um, and to guide you through which ingredients went in at what steps. Heck, it could even fill out a crossword, crossword puzzle for you, right? <laughs> well, yes, but what would the fun be in that? <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I think it's interesting. I have, as a reader, I'm a big fan of the German news magazine, Der Spiegel, and I noticed in the online edition a couple of years ago, they started with virtual content, virtual reality content. And I had the same reaction as, as you just described, that it was a little bit a hammer in search of a nail, where I, I love reading their just pure text stories. I, I don't need any of the visuals. I just I, I feel it's almost distracting from the content. Uh, but the production costs for these kind of these uh, virtual reality, augmented reality pieces, they must be dramatically higher, aren't they? 
They certainly are. Um, it's, it's also new technologies, and so the workflows and processes haven't quite been hammered out as well. So they are, you know, to your earlier point on management consulting, much more inherently inefficient than the typical graphics processes. But I do think that we're beginning to see those technology costs come down. Um, a lot of the, the technology that we're using right now for things like augmented reality is coming from the world of gaming. Um, so using things like the Unreal Engine to create new virtual worlds that have these objects in them, for example. Um, and I also think that some of the, te- the, excuse me, the lessons that we're taking from those are things that can be applied to much more traditional presentation. Uh, for example, working with the graphics desk at Axios, the visuals that were put together there were really fantastic and almost antithetical to what you would have in uh, augmented reality. They needed to fit in a very small space in the, in the feed of stories as they went by. And so there, the focus was really much more on how can we tell this story very quickly and succinctly to get you to what you need to know in this particular visual, but then give you the controls and the interactivity that if you were interested, you could go much deeper and you know learn something in there that you might not have otherwise. And I think those techniques really translate very well. Matt, uh, talk more about your time at Axios and maybe just start out for the listeners not familiar with Axios, kind of explaining what it is. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so Axios uh, launched two days before the inauguration of President Trump here in the United States. Uh, it was founded by Roy Schwartz, uh, Jim Vandehei, and Mike Allen, uh, who were all at Politico prior. And the goal was to get people smarter faster. Um, if you see the, the site on Axios.com, it's a mobile-first experience. And it's designed to mimic uh, the experience of going through a social media feed, where every story is complete. Uh, you don't have to click off on a headline to go to a story page. You can read the entire thing right there as you scroll through that feed. And the goal was to make sure that we could get people the information that they needed to be smart about what's going on in politics, technology, business, um, as efficiently and as quickly as possible. And that ethos really went through everything from the way that we edited to the, the number of words that we would allow above the fold. We do have some stories that go a little bit deeper, but they can be expanded in line so that you don't have to go anywhere else. Um, and as I said, it also lent itself to the way that we thought about how we do visuals not wanting to do big presentations that took a long time to really understand the point of, but something that got the message across while still allowing a user to go a little bit deeper. That must have been an interesting contrast to your experience at the New York Times, where with the Times you have an old established newspaper with a, with a long and very proud legacy that has moved into the digital world. And then in Axios here you're starting a publishing platform 2015, 2016, with mobile, with everything digital fully in line, what allows you to, what, what can you do things if you're born digital compared to if you are transformed into digital? Oh, it was a fascinating process. You're absolutely right. I mean, with, with no legacy to start from, we were able to move very quickly and launch a new site with new um, journalistic processes and editorial processes uh, in just under five months. It was really a, a remarkable opportunity. And then very quickly, we're able to pivot and create some of our own tools the following year, uh, again, in, in almost record time. It was really fascinating. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. The big difference there was not just that these, these companies had different amounts of, of, say, archive or history, but also just the culture around it. Uh, it was almost baked into everyone who works at the Times, and I'm sure it still is, that uh, before you pitch an idea, before you go and talk to, to a colleague about something you might want to do, you ask yourself this internal question, is this really Timesian? And I think in many ways that can be very limiting because some of those ideas might be places that the company wants to go, but they've internalized this idea that, that the Times stands for quite a lot. Um, I have been really encouraged lately to see that that's begun to be a bit more flexible with things like the, the uh, New York Times Magazine, uh, especially some of the, the other work they've done more in print, like with the kids section, for example, trying to reach out to new audiences and new readers uh, which I think is exactly where they need to go. Um, the main difference, I would say, is that at the Times, it took a long time to convince people that your idea was something that we should take forward, whereas at Axios, uh, the time was mostly spent trying to winnow the list of ideas down to those that we could actually afford to do in, in the time that we had available to us. Um, you know, it was it was a very different place of trying to do almost everything at once. And, uh, yeah, certainly a very quick shift in the focus of, of my work. With the luxury of hindsight and the wisdom of a management consultant, 
what what advice would you have kind of what, what do you conclude for that for a company like like the times at that time or for any company right now that is facing that uh, tension or that dilemma to to what extent they embrace digital technology to what extent they disrupt themselves uh do i hear some benefit from from you basically saying that well it might have been better if we would not have been the r&d labs but we would have been like a spin off out of the times to to avoid that kind of that cultural force that you were describing oh actually no if anything i would say that we needed to be more closely embedded um to to, to be contagious exactly because the true innovation that that we were trying to, to promulgate ultimately needed to be agreed upon and seen by the people who are working on product day to day or working on editorial tools or even in the newsroom. Um, and, and sitting apart as we did, uh, it was very difficult to get those conversations in the right place to the right people. Whereas if we'd had an opportunity to collaborate much more closely, I think we could have brought some of them to, to fruition much sooner. And frankly, I think to, to answer your question in a different way, that's exactly where I would guide any publisher who's thinking through these issues right now. You know, um, creating a bespoke uh, innovation team is good because it gives that team some some space and some time to kind of think ahead and think about what's happening next. The trouble is that they don't do that in a way that is informed by the current product roadmap. And, and that's really where I think the most interesting innovation happens. It's taking something that you had already planned to do and doing it a little bit better, doing it a little bit more future-focused, doing it a little bit more bulletproof so that it, it can carry you forward in a much more tangible way. Now, Axios very quickly had very strong revenues. Uh, what did you do? <laughs> uh, we hired fantastic reporters. I think <laughs> if you look all the way down uh, from Mike Allen to Dan Primack and you know, Freed all the way to folks like Alexi McCammons who have come on more recently, um, everyone there knows their beat really well. Um, I, I talked to Nick Johnston, our editor-in-chief, a lot about his um, his interview process because many people would ask, like, how do you get people to write short? How do you convince trained reporters who've been through, you know, typical inverted pyramid training to come here and write 200 words instead of 800? And the thing that really surprised me is that he said most of them want to. Um, a lot of the B matter that comes at the bottom of the story is put there by rote. Uh, the, the point of the story is really done in, in the first 150, 200 words. And if you can give someone an opportunity to be really smart, really fast, and and cut that down to just the, the nugget of what they want, uh, it's better both for the reporter and for the reader. And so I think that really was the, the secret sauce, was, was getting some really smart writers in the door and giving them free reign to just focus on what was truly important. The secret sauce shared to, uh, with you by Matt Borgi, the former chief technology officer at Axios and the executive director of the R&D lab at the New York Times. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you so much for both of our guests. Uh, you have been listening here to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. If you want to have access to some of the older episodes, again, check out my website, workoftomorrow.com. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terish. And on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.